sure being a part of an industry that you see has a lot of pain is great. That means business is good. Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson Pettit. Zach is managing director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back to a special episode of For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. This week is a special one as it's actually the last week of Fountain City Fintech before Demo Day on October 15th, which is next Tuesday. If you listened to the Navid episode yesterday, then you know that today is actually the second of five deal flow episodes, giving you a chance to meet the founders before they pitch on Tuesday. Today, you'll get to meet Donald Hawkins, the CEO of Griffin Technologies. Griffin has a geolocation SDK that's helping community banks and fintech companies take KYC from a checkbox on the regulatory side to actually knowing their customer, being able to provide value from a lot of different directions as a result. He's bringing context back to the conversation. Griffin is a bit unique in our program because Donald actually came out of the NBKC Bank Entrepreneur in Residence program that we stood up about six months ago as kind of a funnel into Fountain City Fintech. So, same as yesterday, in addition to getting to talk to Donald, we will have a co-host joining us, NBKC Bank's own CEO, Brian Unruh. With that, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Donald Hawkins, starting now. I have been a serial entrepreneur, uh, had a small venture when I was in college, um, when I found out that medical and dental providers did not know how to market and advertise. So me and a couple of my roommates created a website. Doctors paid 100 bucks per month. We spent about 20 bucks of that amount on AdWords. At the time, it was about 12 cents a click. And uh, we ended up growing it to about 170 doctors. Had no clue what we had, but we were the rich guys on campus. You know, we were the ones who everybody came to for beer yeah. and did a little work. And uh, we eventually uh, sold that company off. Uh, and I ended up working for one of the doctors that was on the platform. After that, I ended up uh, making small micro investments into entrepreneurs that were from my hometown, and I was just interested in everything because we had developers. And uh, years passed, got married, stopped working for the doctor uh, that I uh, left the company uh, for, and uh, ended up getting a call from my best friend's sister about buying a magazine. And I was like, I'm not that crazy. As one does. No. Yeah. Happens yeah. to the best of us. Yeah. All entrepreneurs have got to buy magazines at least once in their life. Or, well, not car dealerships, car washes, like athletes do. <laughs> and she sent me a copy of the magazine, and I saw Porsche and Chick-fil-A on the first two pages as ads. And I'm like, all right, I'm interested. Found out the company was based in Kansas City. Uh, they had 60 of those magazines nationwide. Uh, bought it from uh, my friend's sister's publisher and ended up doing four more magazines within the next 15 months because the company in KC handled all the heavy lifting. All we had to do was meet with businesses. Um, about a year and a half later, they asked me to come on board as their chief sales officer. I packed up my bags, my family, and I moved to uh, South Kansas City, in Leewood, and uh, that's where the story began. Uh, came out here, and they asked me to, uh, to run the national sales side of things, and when I told them we needed to think about digital, they told me that they wanted to focus on print, 
I quit and started what I wanted and uh, started raising capital here in Kansas City. Went through an accelerator down in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, got beat up real bad because I had a B to B to C model with a, an app called City Smart that collected all the information and data feeds from a market and then gave it to consumers for free. And I found out that geofencing was something that enterprises were interested into. And that kind of brought me up to present day when I got connected with this guy named Zach Pettit. <laughs> so basically your whole entrepreneurial history has been like, jump to a lily pad, be on that lily pad for a minute, figure out that there's a problem at a very close adjacent lily pad, hop to the next lily pad, and then just keep doing that over and over and over again? I think that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, you it know, seems like you just keep pulling fast. back a layer of the onion. The, the, the good news for us is that we were discovering customer pain points, but we kept discovering larger customers. So I had a decision to make. Raise a lot of money to serve a lot of smaller clients for smaller monthly recurring revenue, mm -hmm. or use those funds and use the same type of technology to serve much larger clients uh, even at a small scale, that would have likely have taken me years to get to that amount from a, a monthly recurring revenue side of things. But then I also thought about it from uh, an impact standpoint. Yeah. If my old model was B2B to C, the amount of time and energy it would take for me to exact some change for a large ecosystem would take a long while. But working with a large enterprise client, they already have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of customers that my technology could help impact. So all of that's happening, the story that you just told, and then you and I meet through Connor Montgomery, who is a friend of the Accelerator, friend of the bank, and just a friend of friends, Go. Uh, the man himself. And that leads to another random conversation that we have up here on the third floor. And basically, you're telling me things about geofencing. I'm trying to recruit a program. And I'm like, I don't know. You're a friend of Connor's. So, like, let's have a conversation. Like, I'm happy to do that. But, like, I'm, you know, halfway in a different world, right? And then we have a conversation about Zillow and this kind of, you know, fact that Zillow has an open API. You can geofence a lot of these houses. And then simultaneously, I'm trying to kind of like story weave and dream weave a little bit through this whole thing to get everybody on the same page with actually how this thing came to be. Brian and I and Eric Garrett's and our CFO and just kind of our core fintech team inside of the bank are simultaneously having a conversation about what ended up being an entrepreneur in residence program after many kind of <laughs> weird iterations of it. Um, but Brian, can you give a little insight as to like, where that whole thing came from the, as this parallel path was moving? I can. I, I had never heard of an EIR program when you first brought that up, but I think we talked about things that kind of morphed into that. And I think it basically started with, we talk about our good idea shelf around here, yep. and we love to think creatively and think forward. And so we just had a lot of ideas that we would love to get to. We've got a growing and talented development team but they can't get to all the stuff that we mm -hmm. want to get to. So it just started the conversation of we should try to go find some really, really smart, motivated people and, and see if they may want to just take one of these and run with it. And I think that's when you basically uh, kind of evolve that idea into a pure EIR type program. So. It's yeah, cool. Cool yeah. to see come together. Yeah. I mean, I think everything that you laid out there was basically like, we have problems, we see a market and like, let's find people to solve it. Right. I mean, w without knowing it, you were a hundred percent describing an EIR program. Um, so Anna Donald in this whole conversation, what, what was that discovery process like for you? Cause I mean, you're still at a pretty early stage, but you have figured out an unbelievable amount in a pretty small amount of time. 
So just kind of talk through that learning experience and like being somebody that didn't really have a fintech or banking background and just, you know, peeling back layers of this onion. I mean, it's like you discover a new problem every week. Yeah. Uh, so first off, big thanks to Brian, you and NBKC because they downgraded really, really smart to aggressively average. <laughs> and, and that's how I was able to, uh, to join the ER program. So I uh, got lucky. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, I, I feel our job is to find solutions to real pain points. And I had not thought about banks before because there are a lot of things that the average consumer just doesn't realize about banks. We all assume that almost every bank is on the same level as some of the, the tier one banks in the, of the world. And I assumed every bank new customer transaction data. Mm -hmm. Same level technologically, you mean. We didn't know there was a difference. Uh, I thought every bank had their own huge dev team and they managed their own apps and did all of those different things. So the the cool thing about the way I believe entrepreneurs work is if you give them a little seed or a small direction, then the best of us, you know, we go out and we exploit it as much as we can. So when you drop that seed in my head about geofencing homes for sale, I'm like, you know what, wait a minute. Let's see where this goes. And uh, I went to LinkedIn and got in contact with as many mortgage directors as I could. Uh, and I realized that by default, a lot of bankers, they meet. That's what they do for a living. Let's meet and talk about ways for me to sell you, even mm-hmm. though I know you're selling me. Golf and such. That's it, man. Yes. And uh, we ended up working our way up to uh, some heavy hitters really quickly. And when I asked them about their pain point, they did most of the talking. I just kind of listened. Yeah. And I realized, man, I think we have something here. Banks aren't as technologically advanced as I thought. Uh, most of them do not have dev teams, or if they do, they aren't very uh, large, aren't very skilled. Uh, they have very old systems uh, that are legacy, a lot older than I thought. Uh, and they like passive solutions, but they were also really, really interested uh, in innovation. Uh, so every bank that I got in contact with it just kept getting better and better and better. Uh, and I realized that we had something pretty neat that we could build and have a lot of impact to help banks out. So kind of pulling, pulling that apart, but I, I'm trying to like kind of give as much context to this whole thing as I can. So Brian, banks, we're what, seven, 800 million in assets, depending on kind of when you check in. Correct. What? What does the average kind of sub billion dollar bank or sub couple billion dollar, you know, average community bank in the U.S. I'm not even necessarily asking what's the tech stack, but like, do they have developers? Are they, you know, is it is it one person that runs IT that's running around trying to put out fires or is it truly like a proactive system? Like, just talk a little bit about what that normally looks like. Sure. I think if you ask most small banks, let's say under billion and a half, something like that. Yeah. Uh, about a development team, they're probably going to say, yeah, we have, you know, four, but they're really IT folks. More than likely, they have zero developers on staff. And, and definitely when you get down to our size, 800 million and below, I think it would be pretty rare that you have a developer. And I think we've got maybe 12 today. I think probably, a few more, yeah. yeah but something in that realm, 12 quick, to 15 Quickly yeah. growing and probably be 20 maybe after the first part of next year. So we believe in that uh, investment in the development team. So you, the question is really just like, what does that normally look like, right? So we oh. we have a development team. Most of these other banks don't. Um, are they really just kind of buying? Are they buying technology out of the box, and that is the tech stack? Very reliant on third parties. Yeah, and typically the core provider. Mm-hmm. 
and vendors that the core provider kind of recommends and yes. all that whole soup. That's what they look at as a fintech partnership would be a third-party vendor, vendor probably suggested okay. by the core provider. Yeah. Which, and there's like, you know, and this is not to say that there's something wrong with that. It is, it is a thing that has happened as a result of the market in banking and all of this acquisition, all the mutual acquisitions and everything else. I mean, it's just kind of how things have manifested themselves. So, and actually it's, it's really good in some ways because, you know, maybe rewind 10 to 15 years, small banks didn't even have that. Hmm. So, so what did that look like? I mean, we're going to go down the tangent. Were developing things and that's why they were so far ahead. And as the, I think, market expanded and the core providers were willing to open up and, and partner, sometimes buy, you know, a small fintech provider of some sort, the smaller banks began getting access to those things. So that has helped, you know, that to think 10 years ago that we would, a small bank could open an account online or all those kind of things. It was just out of the realm of even the possibility because there was no solution for that. Yeah. So Donald, as a result of all that, like what are the things that you're hearing from bankers that give you the sense? Like, cause I mean, you and I had a conversation. I'm not going to act like I gave you some nugget. I just told you there was an API that exists. You went out and found a number of proof of concepts. Like you did the work to figure that out. So what was the thing that resonated the most? Like why, why did this click so well? Well, you know, I grew up in a small town, and in a small town, uh, things moved a lot slower. Uh, and I recall my mom and dad going to the bank and depositing their checks from work because there was no direct deposit back then. And I remember Mr. Joe at the bank handing us suckers if we did a good job, and it was an experience, and it was what everybody was accustomed to. Yeah. And I've also seen as, uh, as I've grown, and I have a, a little girl now, and it dawned on me, she's never been in a bank before. <laughs> so, you know, when you start to compare those stark differences between, you know, your childhood and your child's childhood, yeah. you know, it, it starts to stand out. And I started to recognize some of the obvious things that banks were already aware of, like reduced foot traffic or people using credit cards as opposed to debit cards, you know, or mobile only banks and, and tons of advertising to get people to use mobile only banks. Um, and I recognized that a lot of banks didn't really have a way to compete. And before I started really digging into fintech and financial institutions, I had no clue that they didn't know that. I mean, that's kind of the downside of knowing about technology. You want to assume other people know it as well because yep. it's, it's widespread. And uh, and after looking into it, you know, and speaking to these bankers, they let me know, hey, we would love to get our hands on as much of that as possible. What is a geofence? Is that like a force field? <laughs> You know, or how does that work? Yeah. How can we get it implemented? And that's how everything got started. You're talking about geofencing. You're talking about date location data. How does location data and all that beckon back to the time of going to the counter at a depository institution and having a conversation with Joe and you saying to Joe, hey, you know, I'm thinking about a house. I'm thinking about a car. And Joe being like, well, we're a bank. That's kind of what we do. What how are those correlated connect those dots for me yeah i mean well you got to go back in time and remember how banks used to operate and the cross sell and upsell moment was how banks made their money you know banks were retail the more banks you had in the city typically the more money you would make because you had the ability to influence more people and think about it banks influence people when they were coming to deposit checks that's about the best possible time especially back then to talk to people about Roth IRA accounts, uh, automobile accounts, uh, or loans, home loans, uh, HELOCs, anything you could imagine. Yeah. That was the perfect timing. And because foot traffic has dropped so significantly, 
And because so many banks have now adopted that third-party technology and people are now depositing checks via the app because banks have to have that as a tool now, uh, they're also pretty much creating their own problem. You know, by offering those features in the mobile app, you're also reducing your foot traffic. Yeah. So what I recognized was that bankers offer tons of services and tons of features to help consumers. The problem they have is timing. They don't know when to contact their customers. When it's a one-on-one conversation, you can talk about five different products because that's the way conversations work. But now everything is done via text message and email. So what would happen if your local bank sent you five messages back to back to back about auto loans, home loans, uh, home refinance loans, uh, everything you could imagine? Yeah, my old bank used to. Yeah, and you got rid of them or you press spam and now they can't message you anymore. Both. So what we realize is that with Griffin, we have the ability to be that technology partner for banks to give them that gentle nudge of when to notify their customer Mm -hmm. when they have a service they could potentially uh, potentially benefit them with. So basically what you're telling me is like, I I obviously have the MBKC app on my phone. I'm an MBKC user. Um, And I don't just say that because Brian's in the room and I get in trouble otherwise. But I also have, you know, I have my emergency savings at a separate spot. I have, um, my, I'm checking on my credit, uh, my credit score on Credit Karma. I'm checking my Betterment account for my Roth IRA. All these different things are elsewhere. So, what are, are you saying that in the final state of this thing, like potentially it could all be in one app? Like you're basically trying to grow share of wallet for the bank that is like the home, right? That's the idea. Exactly. You know, we live in a day and age where. Other entrepreneurs have figured out ways to disrupt things that banks used to be market leaders for. And because banks did not adopt technology at a faster pace, they lost. You know, the leader right now for home loans is Quicken Loans, Rocket Mortgage, right? If you think about car loans now, you don't think about your local bank like you used to. You think about Ally. And I could go down the line of everything that banks used to be leaders in that now are owned by non-banks. Uh, And primarily what they figured out is they reach consumers in a more effective method, more effective timing. And banks, because of the legacy systems and the inability to control the technology, they don't really have the ability to know when to contact these customers. Griffin essentially becomes that virtual assistant that you like that will notify Mr. Joe in the bank. You should contact Zach to let him know that you have a really good auto loan rate. Why? Because we know Zach is likely inside an automobile dealership right now. Or you should contact Brian to let him know about a great home loan rate that you all have recently announced because you know that Brian is also now in a potential home for sale. So we're kind of that gentle nudge to help give banks, uh, to make banks first movers again. And it's, it, I want to ask Brian, like, hey, Brian, how does this resonate with you? Like, rah, 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 you know, but the, you were an EIR and like a lot of this was us having conversations and kind of like, you know, getting like molding the loose clay together. So I don't want to toss you that much of a softball, but like. <laughs> I'm still trying to react. I think a second ago as a banker, I just got called Blockbuster Kodak. <laughs> well, that is that is the direction I'm going, oh, basically. Okay, okay. Is so like with with everything that he did just say, what. What is your reaction in a futuristic kind of way, right? Like, what are the things that resonated with you that when Donald kind of came and said this, that you were like, oh, shit, let's figure this out? I've talked often uh, on some of these podcasts and just with you individually about the the cool part of learning when we get these smart people in here thinking differently. Truly, this was something that had never even crossed my radar that uh, as a possibility to help us as a business with the kind of technology that he has created so that's the super cool part when you just have this 
crazy new realization of we could go tackle and really an age-old problem in a truly completely different way and it's something that we could afford it's something we can get our heads around use it for good uh, yeah it's like cross sell is maybe finally not a bad word right? right like after all the wells fargo stuff i mean it's just like a it's a thing you hear cross sell and you're like oh god somebody's getting fined you know i i was sitting around having a beer with some buddies the other night and we the conversation kind of came to is it offensive that they're listening to us looking at our uh, you know, where we're going, all yeah. that, and, and they're serving up these ads. And I said, I'd love it. Get rid of all this shit that I don't want to see. And if I'm out shopping for a new something and I get some choices popping up, I'm cool with that. I, I, I really do think that's okay. It, it's all about convenience nowadays. You know, there's a recent study that came out that shows that 76% of consumers, and that number's going up every year, are completely fine with their location being mm-hmm. utilized because they recognize that they don't mind trading off their data in exchange for convenience. And anybody that disagrees, I ask them right now, please delete Google Maps from your device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you want to find the coffee shop nearest you, good luck. Maybe yeah. go go print out map buy a map. Like we used to. Yeah, buy a map. <laughs> <laughs> go print out map quests like we used to in the old days. You know, don't, don't carry it, a phone and wrap yourself in aluminum foil. That's or, it. Yeah. it. You know, but but if, if we have all heard, heard the term that what if you're free, if something's free, you're, you're the, the customer. Product. Yeah, you're the product. And you know, and every year, every day, consumers get a little bit more comfortable with understanding. If I'm getting value, I don't mind you having the data. And uh, what we recognize with banks is that there are no better stewards for consumer data than banks. No one is as highly regulated as banks. Uh, all banks need is technology to help them help their customers. That's all they care about. Before we were looking into banks, we were looking into retail. And I can promise you, and from the conversations that I had with some of the retailers, it was not pretty. I mean, they wanted to hit up consumers as often as possible, yeah. you know, as they could. I mean, that's the way their world works. But banks are completely different beasts. It's all about getting that nudge, that timing of when I need to contact my customer about a service or a feature that I can offer. Well, maintaining trust. That's we it. hope we have it with our customers and you don't want to damage that trust by doing the wrong thing. So I really think that the United States as a generality has this very jaded view of banks after 2008, right? And like, there's a lot of like, I mean, obviously there's a jaded view of banks after 2008. There's a lot that happened there. There's a lot to unpack. But we have like 5,000, 4,500 banks, whatever it is in the U.S. And we're all of them bad actors. We're all of them, you know, not acting in the best interest of the client. Like there's incentive systems we work within and, you know, we'll talk about that later. But I think that there's this sense of like, oh, you talk to a community banker and they're anti-innovation. You know, they're, they're, they're not even wanting to have this conversation because they're scared of it. You walk around the accelerator with a friggin' smile on your face all day because you're spending so much time doing customer discovery, and it seems like you're really hardened by the conversations you're having. So can you just like talk about that? Because I feel like that's just, like I just want you to get on your soapbox for a second and explain that community bankers are actually like doing the damn work. Do, do I need to leave the room? Just gonna get back You know, it's it's fun, man. You know, when as an entrepreneur. Being a part of an industry that you see has a lot of pain is mm-hmm. great. That means business is good, right? There's a lot of potential solutions that we can help with and yeah. impact, right? Even as a, a an early stage company, it's just neat to realize that we are on the cutting edge of something new, which is really difficult to say in 2019. Yeah. 
you know, uh, and the cool thing that that I noticed and what makes it even easier is that there's a lot of motivation for a lot of these banks, even especially, you know, credit unions, community banks. They want to do more. Mm -hmm. They can't soak up enough information fast enough. The big problem that a lot of them run into is they don't know what to do with it. You know, there's all this deep tech and they know that it has to go through compliance. They, they know that there's privacy, uh, things that have to be considered, and things that they will need to also go through themselves to get everything approved. It's like drinking from a fire hose because they are just now starting to understand or even hear about some of the things that are available. And I think that's kind of the value of NBKC. People kind of utilize you guys as a sounding board you know, to figure out what's cool, what works, and, and should we get involved uh, as well. So for me... It's just been a blast because I'm learning things that they don't have every day, and I'm looking at my product roadmap, and it's long. <laughs> you know, that there's a lot that we could get into. Uh, we definitely plan on focusing on only a few features, uh, but I'm hoping I can pass off some of these things that I'm learning to get some other companies spun up. You know, and help these banks out as well. The cool thing for me is because I come from a small town, I like what community banks stand for. It's a whole different deal. You know, being able to have a relationship with a bank and people in the bank that are just like you, that know where you come from, that, that want you to do well, it's a whole different piece, you know, or a beast compared to larger banks typically where it's just about the economics and transactions, how many transactions and how much money do you have in your account versus community bank. It's all right, we're actually thinking about deeper things and we don't want you to to lose your funds. We want you to make smart decisions, which is typically why community banks are a little bit uh, more direct to deal with as well. So it's cool because it's, it's, it feels good to be able to think that I'm doing something good in fintech because typically when it comes to venture and banking, you just think it's all about the money, but it's so yeah. much more than that. I shared this story with Donald the other day. I spoke at a conference in Austin last fall and uh, during the Q&A, one of the bankers stood up and said, what's your opinion on who owns data? And he said, I think it's really kind of bullshit that as small banks, we can't own our own data. And I said, well, I don't disagree with that, but let me, I'll ask you back a question. If you had it all tomorrow, what would you do with it? And he gave me kind of a blank stare, kind of like when you answered a riddle earlier. And, <laughs> and he said, uh, well, stuff, I guess. And, that's the problem, I think, which you nailed on. Stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No one knows quite what to do with it, even if we did have it. And so what I love is I've sat down and had conversations with you. Of it, it basically makes you reverse that conversation, and you think about what would I like to get done, and when you come up with that idea, then I can look at you and say, how could you go make that happen? And with your flat-ass wizardry stuff on that, computer you showed me the other day he said here's how i could go do it and do it pretty quickly problem so, solution yeah i think that part's really really cool i mean it's like the old days of saying i'm not going to mail you know 300 million direct mail pieces i got to think about my campaign and here's where it's going to go and what it's going to try to so it's almost the same approach using data really 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 smart approach using data to get those kind of results so i think even us old dumb CEO bankers, you know, uh, can get our minds around it and get pretty damn excited about it. It's like the New Day Gold Rush. I mean, you got to think about the way data works. I mean, do you all remember years and years ago 
when social media got hot and people were out charging five, ten grand a month for social media management, you know, or even retargeting campaigns with mm-hmm. like ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars a month just to pay for the consultant to set it up. And now you can set up a website today with Wix and have a retargeting campaign set up in about three hours. It's a data rush. Data rush is the new gold rush. And what a lot of entities are starting to figure out is data saturated. And a lot of people know a lot about their consumers now. But what other data is out there? But most importantly, what do you do with it? And, and that's what we try to solve with location data. Thanks for listening to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. If you want to learn more about Griffin or the cohort of Fountain City Fintech, we'd love to have you at Demo Day next Tuesday. Search for Fountain City Fintech Demo Day on the Google machine, and it'll be the first thing to pop up. If you're not in KC and you want to chat and get to know any of the founders or just talk more about Fountain City Fintech or have a conversation with me, please reach out to me at zach.pettit at nbkc.com, and we can connect, or I can connect you to the person that you want to talk to. Otherwise, if you're heading to Vegas for Money 2020, please reach out. Donald, myself, and the whole Fountain City Fintech cohort will be down there. Um, If you're interested in having a conversation there, we'd love to spend some time together, so please reach out. And whatever you do, don't fintech for free.